What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today we're talking the economy. After a turbulent 2022 in the UK, including the effects of Russia's war on Ukraine, Liz Truss's mini budget, and the ongoing recovery from COVID lockdowns, today we're asking should Britain's economists brace themselves for the worst? Here's our host, Manveen Rana, journalist and podcast host of Stories of Our Times for The Times and Sunday Times with more. On January the 4th, in his first major speech of the year and first noticeable intervention for some months, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, made a series of promises designed to give peace of mind, a sense of, of reassurance to the public about the economy in 2023. These promises included halving inflation, growing the economy, bringing down the national debt and reducing NHS waiting times by the end of the year. It's certainly an ambitious set of New Year's resolutions for an economy that's still reeling from the drama and shocks of 2022. So can Rishi Sunak really bring inflation under control? Can the UK cope without resettling its relationship with the EU? And how prepared are we all for more tension with Russia and China in 2023? To help us find some answers, we're joined by three brilliant guests. Uh, firstly, Jonathan Portis, who's an economist and professor of economics and public policy at King's College London, and a senior fellow at the independent research organisation, The UK in a Changing Europe. He's also the author of books including 50 Capitalism Ideas You Really Need to Know, and What Do We Know and What Should We Do About Immigration? We're also joined by Victoria Scholar, who is Head of Investment at Interactive Investor, which is the UK's second largest direct-to-consumer investment platform. She previously worked as a financial journalist with IG Group and is a regular contributor to BBC News and Sky News on issues of business, finance and the economy. We're also joined by Gerard Lyons, who is Chief Economic Strategist at the Wealth Manager NetWealth and Board Member of the Bank of China UK. He's also a senior fellow at Policy Exchange and an expert on the global economy, financial markets and monetary policy. And he also earned the title last year of Liz Truss's favourite economist. So welcome all. Thank you for joining us. Let me just start by asking each of you to briefly set out what you think um, 2023 holds for the economy. Jonathan, do, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so... I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that it's not going to be a great year for the economy as a whole. Um, 
you know, we probably are in recession now. But equally, I think that some of the gloom uh, and doom has been overdone. So, for example, you mentioned Sunak's promise to get inflation down. That, of course, is 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 not under his control. The rise in inflation was driven by global energy prices. Those are falling back. And the fall in inflation will be driven by global energy prices. And of course, um, inflation is a responsibility of the Bank of England. Um, so inflation is going to have over the course of the year anyway, according to the Bank of England and the OBR. And that in turn will reduce some of the pressures on households. So I think actually, uh, although uh, it, we won't see runaway growth this year, the um, the economy may not do as badly as, as some forecasters have previously suggested. Interest rates may not have to rise as much as uh, some people were thinking only a couple of months ago. However, that doesn't mean that the UK doesn't have, and I think this is the more worrying thing, more uh, serious long-term structural economic problems. Um, the result of 12 years of both of austerity and, frankly, a pretty dreadful economic policy management um, by this government has meant that we've seen very low growth in productivity and real wages and so on. And on top of that, of course, we have Brexit. And I think there is an increasing consensus among almost all economists that Brexit has, you know, it's not responsible for the problems we are in, but it is making them worse and it will continue to do so. And finally, I mean, I think we also need to look a bit, you know, it's not just about the economy. The figures released by the ONS today suggest that over the last week of data, 3,000 more people than usual died in this country. That's 3,000 extra deaths as a direct result of obviously the bad flu season we're having, but also the crisis in the National Health Service. And, you know, economics matters, but literally hundreds of people dying every day unnecessarily also matters. And I think we should think about that as well. Victoria, what, what are your predictions for the, for the economy this year? Well, similar to what Jonathan's been saying there, but there's no doubt that the macroeconomic outlook for the UK economy in 2023 looks very challenging. Of course, we've got pressures from double-digit inflation that's been driving the cost of living crisis and bringing about what's likely to be the longest recession in 100 years. Um, and in a recession, that typically means that consumers have less disposable income to spend, businesses can struggle with lower earnings, unemployment tends to rise and the government will receive less in terms of tax receipts to spend on essential services like the NHS to Jonathan's point about the pressures on the health service and the increased number of deaths in the UK. But on a more positive note, the hope is that inflation will start to fall this year as the Bank of England's interest rate rises take effect and those energy prices start to ease and problems with the global supply chain post-pandemic ease off as well. Plus, a recession tends to ease inflationary pressures too. So by the fourth quarter of this year, uh, there is the hope that the UK could eke out a small amount of growth once again. So a note of optimism right at the end there. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that this is looking like it could be the longest recession um, on record, effectively. Do you, do you, could you? We won't hold you to this, I promise, but could you just give us a ballpark sense of when you see it ending, when you see things picking up, if not in 2023, when? 
Well, the official forecasts are that we could eke out a small amount of growth in the final quarter of 2023. So the hope is that we can potentially return to some kind of growth in 2024. Of course, a lot of this depends on the path of inflation because that's been uh, the sort of key economic challenge that we've faced post pandemic. And it's responsible for a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now, whether that's the cost of living crisis, it's also closely tied to the high amount of strikes and industrial action because um, wages are failing to outpace price increases. Um, so the real key sort of for first and foremost uh, issue facing policymakers at the moment is to try to get price levels back down to a normal level where wages are growing more quickly than prices. Uh, and we start to see that reverberate in terms of the affordability of goods and services for consumers and a reduction in costs for businesses, which all in all will have a much more positive impact on our growth outlook. And Gerard, finally, what are your predictions for, for the economy this year? Well, good afternoon. It's good to be on the show. Um, I would describe this year as the good, the bad and the uncertain. Uh, the good is that inflation looks set to fall significantly, both in the UK and globally. That's largely because the supply side pressures that have contributed to inflation are easing, and also because monetary policy has been tightened, albeit from an initial pull position, but monetary policy has been tightened quite significantly. So inflation should fall significantly, both in Britain and globally. The bad is the economic picture. We are likely to see a technical recession in many Western economies. In the UK, the second half of the year should be better than the first half of the year, as real incomes benefit from that decline in inflation. But it's not just a difficult picture in Britain, it's a very difficult picture globally. Um, take the International Monetary Fund's forecast, not because they're always correct, but they're a pretty good gauge of overall sentiment. Um, a couple of years ago, the world economy grew at 6%. Last year, the IMF was saying it grew around three and a quarter percent. And this year, the IMF expects the global economy to grow around 2.7 to 2.8 percent. Anything around three percent is regarded by economists as a pretty weak global picture. So the bad is that the UK and the global economy will be in some difficulty, but the second half of the year should be better than the first. And then after the good and the bad, the uncertain. The uncertain is where inflation will settle Basically, where will core inflation be? The uncertain is that we're seeing the end of cheap money. Cheap money has been with us in the UK and globally since 2008. The end of cheap money has widespread implications, and it's unclear not just how financial markets, but how sectors such as the property sector and indeed the wider UK economy will cope. And the other uncertain to finish with is the policy environment. Central banks, maybe because they got it wrong two years ago, particularly the Bank of England, seem to have a bias to want to continue to tighten. And the worry is that they overdo that. And the other uncertain in terms of policy is that against this backdrop of tighter global monetary policy, there is very little room for policy manoeuvre in terms of fiscal policy because global public debt levels are already at a very high level. So the good is inflation will fall or should fall. Uh, the bad is the difficult economic backdrop, particularly in growth in the first half of the year. And the uncertain, as I said, touching on in terms of the ending of cheap money and the policy 
environment. Um, one of the issues you've all touched on there is inflation, and it seemed to be the first promise that Rishi Sunak made in his speech. Jonathan, you pointed out that actually he may not have all that much control over what happens to inflation this year anyway. One of the problems we've all seen in the last few months and are likely to see more of in, in the next few is just the, the strength of strike action across the, the country. Is there a problem there in terms of balancing the need to lower inflation while also avoiding the mass disruption from strikes? You know, how do wages fit into all of this? Well, there isn't really a problem, right? Because the inflation is running at about 10%. Average pay in the private sector is rising between 6 and 7%, according to the ONS, while average pay in the public sector is rising between 2 and 3%. So the idea that it is public sector pay that is driving inflation or is likely to drive inflation is simply political nonsense um, from the government. You know, uh, that doesn't mean that one could afford to give all public sector workers what the nurses want of 17, 18 or 19%. And it doesn't mean that there aren't um, uh, over the medium term financial constraints in terms of what the government can afford in terms of public services and balancing that with tax. All those are meaningful. But the idea that giving the uh, um, nurses, other health sector workers and so on, a reasonable pay rise that is closer to what people in the private sector are getting and that would stem the exodus, which we are seeing in the NHS, which is for, you know, is, is one of the reasons, frankly, that those extra people are dying, that that would somehow conflict with the, the fall inflation, which, which will happen anyway. Um, I think is is really, frankly, insulting the intelligence, certainly of economists, but also of the British public. Victoria, in December, the Bank of England increased the base rate of interest rates to 3.5% from, from 3%. And, you know, for a, a, a lot of people in this country, particularly younger people, this is all a bit of a shock. They haven't known interest rates rise for years. What impact do you think this will have now on UK markets? Well, it's interesting because the Bank of England's actually been raising interest rates t since December of 2021. Back then, interest rates moved from a historic low of 0.1% and they've moved all the way up to 3.5%. So the cost of borrowing is now at the highest level since 2008, just before that punch bowl of cheap money was removed for all those years. Um, while and, and, you know, and that helped to spur asset bubbles, it helped to drive equity markets higher. And a lot of people and businesses got used to this era of rock bottom interest rates. But a year ago, inflation was at around double digits. Now we're closer to 40 year highs, and that's putting major pressure on households and businesses. But in terms of the markets, obviously, the mortgage market has been majorly affected. You know, we know it's made borrowing a lot more expensive, particularly for those on variable rate mortgages or for those on fixed rate mortgages that are set to expire. For financial markets, the latest rate hike didn't really have a major effect on markets because it was largely priced in and already expected. But what we have seen in terms of this sea change away from rock bottom interest rates to higher interest rates is that it's had a huge impact on interest rate sensitive businesses such as the house builders, which are obviously affected by mortgage rates. And also we've seen this big sell off in the technology sector, which some of which or a lot of which has been or a lot of its growth has been predicated on debt. 
And then sort of on the flip side, there have been some outperformers on the back of this rate rising environment. Some banks, for example, have fared very well thanks to what's known as um, improved net interest margins, which essentially means that they can earn more on their loans when rates go up. Elsewhere in markets, if we look at the pound, for example, typically what we'd see is that when UK interest rates rise, the pound tends to appreciate because it makes the returns on UK assets more attractive to international investors. So we see those flows towards the pound. But this year it's been complicated by the fact that we've seen this global shift towards higher interest rates. It's not just the Bank of England that's been hiking. And the US central bank, the Federal Reserve, has been carrying out much more aggressive rate hikes, which is why the dollar did very well in 2022 and the pound actually suffered against it. And then we had the economic and political uncertainty around the mini budget. That certainly didn't help with international investor confidence either. And that added to some of the pressures on sterling. And Gerard, Rishi Sunak yesterday, you know, again, one of his big pledges was on growing the economy. And the last prime minister, Liz Truss, obviously sort of made growth one of her mantras and, you know, fighting the anti-growth coalition was her number one priority. But we saw her, her premiership fall after a mere 44 days. How much do you think those 44 days will have damaged our ability to grow? And what are our prospects for, for growth over the next year, do you think? Yeah, a um, whole host of issues there. First, could I just come back on the inflation picture? Because I think that leads into the answer on growth. Two years ago at Net Wealth, we asked which P would in, the increase in inflation be? Would it pass through quickly? Would it persist or would it become permanent? And we thought the Bank of England and central banks were wrong to think it was going to pass through quickly. But in fact, we felt it was going to persist. And indeed, it has persisted. But I think it's right, as Jonathan touched on, to stress that wage pressures have not been the cause of this inflation round. This inflation round has been triggered by supply side factors, but also lacks monetary policy. Like the day the war in Ukraine started, UK inflation was already above 6%, above 8% on the retail price measure. So now we're seeing that being corrected. And as inflation comes down, that's a key factor that comes back to part of your question about the growth backdrop. It's very difficult to see that recovery in economic growth while people are seeing their real income squeezed and firms as well as individuals are suffering under high inflation. But over the last year, the key story has been the need for the UK to move to a pro-growth agenda. The UK, particularly since 2008, and it's not unique to the UK, we've become a low growth, low productivity, and with it, unfortunately, a low wage economy. Now, we do need to move back to higher growth. And now you touch on the Prime Minister yesterday. In some respects, in qualitative terms, his five uh, targets um, should be agreed with. Uh, but in quantitative terms, what he said on inflation, on growth and on debt was not out of line with most economists and were hardly seen as being stretching. But coming back to your question, I don't think those 44 days should have damaged the argument in favour of stronger growth. Obviously, she, the Prime Minister then, Liz Truss and her Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, ignored outside advice. Um, I thought that they should have heeded more what the markets were saying at the time. And they pushed ahead and they led to this reckless outcome. But the underlying argument is that the UK does need to become a high growth economy. But we're a long way from that at the moment. And as we look at the year ahead, it's more about ensuring that inflation does come down. I think it will. But from the prime minister's perspective, it's very difficult when you think of the UK as the only G7 country to be tightening fiscal policy 
going into a global recession. That is really not where we should be. And therefore, we're in the situation or backdrop where what we need in terms of higher economic growth is some way from where we are at the moment. And Gerard, you, you were advising Liz Truss during her time in office. I mean, is there an irony there that sort of as a result of those 44 days, will it actually make it harder for our economy to grow? Whatever, regardless of the policies that she, she was trying to sort of espouse, ha- has it ended up knocking the economy back so far that uh, it makes growth Unlikely. I hate to correct you, but um, <laughs> I wasn't advising. As the Financial Times and the Guardian themselves have reported as fact, um, I saw Liz Truss twice when she was Foreign Secretary. She invited some outside economists in. So I wouldn't call that giving advice. I would actually say, basically, I advised Penny Mordaunt last year uh, when she was running for leader. Uh, she didn't make it. But I was advising Penny Mordaunt on the need for the UK to have a pro-growth agenda. And I think that pro-growth agenda, regardless of who's in power, whether it's Conservatives or Labour, is key. And I think it really needs to have three arrows to it. It needs to have monetary and financial stability. That means not only achieving low inflation through the Bank of England, but ensuring that the city itself is not only competitive, but serves better the needs of the wider economy. It needs an active fiscal policy. There is room for fiscal policy to help manage the economy in downturns as well as reducing debt to GDP over time. And it requires a supply side agenda that really needs to address some of the underlying challenges we've had for decades in the UK, particularly the need to have more investment. In fact, the supply side should be about innovation, investment, infrastructure spending, and getting the incentives right. I think that underlying story about pro-growth is really very important. And also it should be alongside a pro-growth green agenda. And therefore, I think, What we saw last year was the need to make sure that you're mindful of financial markets and that you can't spook financial markets and you need to address the immediate challenges in front of you as well as having a clear longer term agenda. And that's true of whoever is in office, I would argue. Jonathan, do you you think we'll see um, a return of some of the, the libertarian ideas of Liz Truss? to encourage growth over the next year? Well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the libertarian ideas are, but I, I mean, I think in broad terms, I, I pretty much agree with almost everything that Jared just said. The UK needs a growth strategy. Uh, we have these deep-seated structural problems and Liz Truss may have had the wrong answers, but that doesn't mean that the question was wrong. The question of how we get to growth was wrong. So I agree with Jared on that. Um, in terms of what sort of ideas are needed, um, I'm, I don't think the UK isn't and isn't going to become a, an economy run by libertarians. What we need, I think, are, are things which are not particularly libertarian. We need to address some of the deep-rooted problems that, that Gerard mentioned. We need more investment, both public investment and private investment, particularly in infrastructure. We need to build more houses. That doesn't mean that in any real world that we're going to have some sort of libertarian free-for-all where you can just build what you like, but you You need the state to intervene to build more houses and to change the planning regime so it is easier to build more houses. We need more investment in connectivity, by which I mean physical connectivity like transport, but also digital connectivity, broadband and so on. There's nothing particularly libertarian about that. Indeed, of course, the state needs to take the lead. We need 
a childcare strategy. We have some of the most expensive childcare in Europe that clearly inhibits, and then uh, a growth. Um, and then we also need um, to get the NHS working again, coming back to my earlier point, because um, as I said, you know, the thing that we should be worrying us all most at the moment is not so much economics, but the fact that hundreds of people are needlessly dying every day uh, because of the crisis in the NHS. But that does also have economic consequences. The UK is the only major economy to have a lower level of employment than before the pandemic. And that is in part because people can't get treated or because they're having to look after sick or disabled relatives who can't get treated. Um, so there's plenty on the sort of the growth agenda um, that needs to be pursued. Whether this government has um, either the political will or the ability to uh, address some of these issues, I think, is is very much in question because, as Gerald also said, you know, the targets that that the prime minister has set are ones that are frankly, uh, don't even begin to, you know, are, are ones which are likely to be achieved anyway um, and don't even touch the sides in terms of what needs to be done. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too you've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Gerard, it's it's interesting. You, you seem to be agreeing around what sounds like fundamentally almost sort of a Keynesian fiscal policy in, in a time when the economy is really suffering. One of the other priorities that Rishi Sunak put out yesterday was lowering the national debt. Is that something that the government should not worry about so much at the moment? I think it's important to stress that not just this government, but going back to Gordon Brown in 97, we've had a whole series of fiscal rules, most of which are meaningless and most of which are ditched at the first sign of trouble. The rule that really, if you want to have a rule that 
makes any sense is having the clear medium-term strategy to reduce your debt to GDP. Now, government, whichever government, whether it's Britain or overseas, the choices are limited. The best way to get your debt picture improving is growth. If you don't have that, then you should borrow, but it makes sense to do so. Beyond that, austerity, as we saw a decade ago, and as I argued against at the time, doesn't make sense. Or you have higher taxes. And again, higher taxes can only go so far, and then you start to have disincentives from those higher taxes. So really, when you look at that, coming back to your question, is about using fiscal policy sensibly. What one needs to have is coordination between monetary and fiscal policy. The real problem has been, in my personal view, since 2008, that monetary policy has actually not focused on what it should have focused on. And we've relied on cheap money. Cheap money has led to asset price inflation. Seen in the property market, of course, it's not the only factor. We're not building enough properties. But it's led to asset price inflation. Markets do not price properly for risk. It's led to an inefficient allocation of capital. And it's led to an environment where inflation has picked up. What one needs to have is monetary and fiscal policy working together. And coming back to your question, yeah, you can use fiscal policy to stabilise an economy in the short term. Particularly if the general public are not spending, then there's a need for the government to use fiscal policy to stabilise the economy. But as we move further ahead, it's important not to go back to cheap money. It's important for monetary policy to keep inflation under control. But at the same time, reducing debt to GDP makes sense But the best way to do that is to reinforce the point about the need to have economic growth. If we don't actually have economic growth, then we've got some really hard choices here in the UK. And the UK has already been hit by external shocks that have made us poorer. That's the reality of the situation, the war in Ukraine and other factors. So therefore, we actually need to actually try and raise that trend rate of growth, which unfortunately has been trending lower since around 2008. So fiscal policy plays a role, but it doesn't mean that you crowd out the private sector. You need to very much recognise that small firms who are really the lifeblood of the economy, when you talk to them or listen to what they're saying, they say they don't get enough finance. There's a patient capital gap, there's a funding gap for small firms. But at the same time, they say that they've been hit by high taxes and also they've been hit by regulation. Interestingly, as Gordon Brown pointed out, it's not individual regulations, it's the level of regulation. He didn't make it any better. So basically, coming back to your question, fiscal policy has a role to play, but it needs to be seen alongside or in the context of monetary and fiscal policy working together. And it also naturally needs to be seen in the context of that supply side agenda. Liz Truss, uh, Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson over the last year, they very much would be of the view that you need to have that incentive structure in place But as we've seen, it's been far more difficult to deliver on it, partly because of the shocks we've been hit with. Victoria, what should investors be thinking uh, in relation to growth in the UK economy over the next year or so? Well, I echo what Gerard was saying there about asset price appreciation driven by rock bottom interest rates. We've seen bubble-like price action in the tech sector, for example, all the way up until November of last year, when a lot of those stock prices came tumbling down as we started to see this shift towards higher interest rates. So it has created a lot of distortions in the markets. But for the year ahead for investors, it's all about battening down the hatches and preparing for a recession because we're entering into a period of economic weakness. And that means that consumer spending will fall and 
some of the discretionary stocks that sell goods that we want rather than need can suffer as households look for ways to make cutbacks. You know, house builders also tend to struggle as house prices soften and mortgage rates rise. And investors will be looking more towards defensive sectors that are more recession proof, like pharmaceuticals or consumer staples that are companies uh, that sell goods or services that we simply can't live without, whether that's food or toothpaste or toilet roll. But during an inflationary environment as well, it's about finding companies which are price makers rather than price takers, because businesses are dealing with rising costs from energy to wages um, and their success really depends on whether or not they can pass on those extra costs to consumers in terms of higher prices without having a negative impact on sales. It's also worth mentioning the bond market because it was really beaten up last year, government bonds and corporate bonds on the back of rising interest rates again and with the inflation picture and the interest rate hike pressures looking set to ease over the next year uh, some analysts are forecasting that some of the bond prices could ease into next year. And then dividend stocks are getting quite a lot of attention too because they provide regular income and that can be attractive when there's a lot of stock market volatility. One other area to mention as well is precious metals like gold and silver because you know, in, in, in the economic textbook, these tend to shine or are supposed to shine during tough times uh, as investors look for safe havens and ways to preserve their wealth. But this hasn't really been the case during the market turmoil over the last year. And that's because of the strong US dollar and gold and silver are priced in dollars. So they've been a lot more expensive and less attractive. But arguably looking ahead with some analysts or many analysts projecting that this recent appreciation of the dollar could start to turn, we could potentially see gold and silver outperform. So that could potentially be a safe haven to look at, particularly as forecasts are from the IMF, I believe that a third of the world is expected to fall into a recession this year. So people will be looking for, for security. One of the issues that we can't really ignore, you, no discussion of the economy is complete without it, um, is Brexit. Uh, neither Labour nor the Conservatives seem to want to talk about access to European markets at the moment. Jonathan, from the research that you do, how sustainable is our current relationship with the EU? And, and do you th see things changing over the next year? Um, well, I mean, the threat to the sustainability of the relationship is political, right, uh, um, and comes from the, uh, the the tensions over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, I think all the signals are actually that the the uh, current UK government does not want a trade war with the EU, and therefore we will, in some sense, and and also I don't think the EU does either, and that there will be some sort of compromise with the, with the UK. Um, essentially um, accepting that the, 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 you know, backing down in part in return for the EU doing something to, to ease some of the current difficulties. So hopefully we'll see a resolution of that. Um, more broadly, the situation is sustainable. I mean, the, the, you know, Brexit is not the main cause of our current woes. Um, it is a persistent drag on UK economic performance. Um, our trade performance has been noticeably weak. Um, since Brexit. Um, we are, relative to a pre-pandemic, we are doing worse than pretty much any other advanced economy in terms of our trade performance. And that is uh, at least in part likely to be down to Brexit. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not sustainable. It just means that um, we have, you know, it, it makes getting back on a, getting to a, uh, a higher growth path that bit 
more difficult. It is what I and others have described not as a car crash, but a slow puncture. Um, and one way, not the only way, and it won't do it on its own, but one way of um, getting a, higher, a better growth performance in the future would be to reset our relationship with the EU to try and begin perhaps with some relatively small moves to uh, get the relationship back on track to build on the current um, the the holes in the current trade and cooperation agreement to move to some forms of regulatory alignment, starting perhaps with food and agriculture and hoping over time to rebuild some of that damaged trade relationship. Um, but I think we have to accept that that it's going to be a, a long haul. Um, one hopes that the, the sort of the shift in the political environment, the public mood, as, as the public, I think, increasingly realise that Brexit is doing some economic damage, will make it more politically feasible for um, uh, a government, this one or some future one, to rebuild that relationship. Um, it's not going to be quick, though, and it's not going to be a silver bullet, but, but there's no question that Brexit is one of the things that's holding us back. Gerard, you, you were, were a, a supporter of Brexit. I mean, would you agree with that analysis? Is it holding us back? Is it, is it like a slow puncture? Um, I would disagree completely. Uh, first and foremost, Brexit is a political process and a political event. Um, and we decided to leave the EU. But in economic and financial terms, it's very much more of a process. That is, is what you do is not just having left. We now need to actually take advantage of it. My criticism would be that the UK government or governments have not really taken advantage of it yet. We weren't helped by the political crisis from 2016 to 2019, when basically things were on hold and Parliament was trying to reverse that democratic result. But it'd be wrong to actually attribute um, the negative performance of the UK to Brexit. And indeed, Jonathan alluded to that. But in terms of the wider implication, most of the negative comments about Brexit are based on forecasts, not on actual performance. And when you actually pin it down, take this widespread 4% hit that the UK is supposed to receive from Brexit that's often quoted. When the, one actually looks at it, it's not a case of the UK economy shrinking. It's the case of the UK economy growing. The perception is that it will be smaller than it would otherwise be. I would refute that. When you actually break those forecasts down, it's not being outside the single market. It's often based on forecasters making assumption about immigration or productivity, which are not linked to being in the EU. Indeed, many of the forecasts made about growth are based on the UK having an insular immigration policy. It's not having that at all. I would argue the UK's immigration policy has been quite open and welcoming. On productivity, being in the single market shows showed no evidence of boosting UK productivity. So why being outside the single market should impact UK productivity, um, it beats me. What one actually finds though is that over the 25 year period, um, the single market membership probably added 0.9% to UK GDP growth. So you could legitimately say that will be an impact. Obviously, it has a big distorting impact when you leave something you've been in for 40 years. But just give you one example. If that single market exit has that impact, let's contrast it with, say, um, transformational change on AI. Back in 2017, Price Waterhouse talked about how AI, where Britain is third behind China and the US, could add 10% to UK GDP by 2035. 
There was a government report prepared in 2017 that talked about AI adding 18% to UK GDP. Now, I've no idea whether those forecasts are overstating it or not, but the point I'm trying to make is that we need to look at these changes and the potential from them and put the worries that people have about being outside the EU in context. I certainly agree with Jonathan, we need to have a sensible relationship with the EU. There's no doubt about that. And that sensible relationship must involve removing or restoring the issues or addressing the issues, let's say, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. But what we really need to have in the UK is recognition, and it's a problem for Western Europe, not just a challenge for the UK, about how the global economy is changing. When we joined the EU 50 years ago, those nine countries then in the EU counted for 26% of global growth. When we left in 2016, the 28 countries in the EU accounted for just around 20% of global growth. Even on the European Commission's own forecast by 2050, the EU will be less than 10% of global growth. India will likely be bigger. So we need to have a sensible relationship with EU, recognise that that's important, but do not uh, think that we should tie ourselves up to the EU so it ties our hands on regulation and the ability to reposition ourselves globally. I think we should have done more, certainly, and that global vision linked to that is something that the Rishi Sunak government, or indeed whoever follows, needs to articulate. It's not a case of tying ourselves more. It's a sensible relationship, but regulatory divergence is necessary, particularly in areas like the financial sector. Jonathan, did you want to come in very quickly? Um, very quickly. I mean, just on a factual point, I agree with Gerald, actually. Uh, um, and, and this is one thing where I've been very positively surprised uh, about what's happened since Brexit, that our immigration policy is actually relatively open and relatively sensible. And, and I agree with Gerald on that. But um, he's wrong in suggesting that the 4% forecast that the OBR has for the damage done to the UK economy by Brexit um, is based on uh, um, a more restrictive immigration policy. Um, that's entirely separate. The OBR's forecast, which is in turn drawn from a consensus of a wide range of outside forecasts of the 4%, is purely um, um, the resulting impact um, of um, our uh, reduced trade and the resulting knock-on impact on productivity. Uh, and I would simply say that I think um, most economists would agree that economies that are significantly less open to trade, as Brexit has already made us and will make us in the future, also are likely to experience lower productivity growth. So I, I, I don't think there's anything particularly controversial about that. Whether the OBR's 4% is precisely right or not, uh, there's plenty of room for argument about that. But unfortunately, the effects are already visible and that will continue to be a drag on, on growth. Um, in terms of, I mean, the more interesting question is sort of given that, what do we do going forward and to what are the potential gains from regulatory divergence? Um, I, I mean, I think, uh, and Gerald's obviously right that we need to take advantage of the, uh, the growth opportunities um, of generated by technology and by growth in other parts of the world. Um, the question is whether that is best gained by regulatory divergence. In global terms, we are a small country. Um, the EU and the US um, um, and perhaps China uh, um, set 
will in future set global regulatory standards? What are the actual potential gains from the UK of striking a different course? I think that is questionable. And unfortunately, we're already seeing this. As I said, the UK's trade underperformance since Brexit has been partly seen in our trade with the EU, but also in terms of our trade with other countries. And that may, it's too early to say, but that may reflect the extent to which we're not being part of the EU's regulatory sphere going forward actually makes it more difficult, not just to trade with the EU, but also makes it less attractive for, for some other countries to trade with us. As we all know, um, a large part of the inward investment to this country, particularly from Japan, was based on our presence in the single market. Um, so will it be easier or harder for us to grow our trade with non-EU countries if we're outside of the EU? I think that remains an open question. Um, and I think the facts, you know, the, 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 the hard truth may be that on, in some respects at least, you know, most obviously, for example, things like cars and electric vehicles, the idea that we're going to set our own regulatory standards there, frankly, I think just isn't realistic. We are going to have to align with the EU in practice. Um, and given that, what are the actual potential benefits of Brexit? It seemed to me to be quite l less obvious, shall we say. Can, can I come back just one minute? Um, I, 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 yeah, just a few. First, yeah, Jonathan's right. The OBR, it wasn't a forecast of theirs. They basically had a sample survey and survey included some very wild negative forecasts. So it, we shouldn't call it a forecast, but when I looked at the 4% breakdown as one summarized it, whether from national institutes or others, immigration and productivity played a key part. Second, the UK is not becoming insular. I think it's very important to stress that uh, the shift in the balance of global power is to the Indo-Pacific, from India in the West to America in the East. Having better trade relationships with far-flung and growing economies is very important. And many of the current economic projections underplay the relative merits of enhanced trade with countries such as India or indeed others, which are going to be far bigger in the future than now. Third point, and just two more points. Third, often economists talk about it as if though it's trade-driven productivity. That is wrong. And it's about productivity driving trade, which is why Jonathan's point about our trade performance with the non-EU countries is important. That's obviously nothing to do with Brexit itself, but it's about productivity itself. And the final point is that what's remarkable is since 2016, if we look at greenfield investments, the UK still attracts the largest proportion in the EU or Western European area. Spain and Germany have seen an increase from their previous levels, but the UK has actually seen a third of an increase from now compared to 2016, and is still seen as an attractive um, location. What we really need to do is have higher growth, and we really, really need to change this narrative, which is about seizing the opportunities. But I agree with Jonathan, you can't be in something for over 40 years and leave it and expect it to be easy. And that's why I called leaving the EU as being a Nike swoosh. The negative impacts up front, the longer term benefits further ahead, 
particularly in the changing brain globe economy. But there are challenges, and I agree with that. Um, I just want to get on to some of the audience questions very quickly. We've got one here from Patrick, who asks that the UK appears to be in a form of managed decline. If this is to be avoided, which sectors can future growth come from? Um, Victoria, do you want to take that first, just because um, you'll, you'll be looking at the investment side of, of um, which bits of the economy you think will are likely to flourish? Yeah, I think there are a lot of um, mega trends, essentially, that could potentially propel growth going forward. I think, obviously, climate change is a really massive theme um, and will continue to be so, be so going into the future. And there are going to be a lot of new sectors that are emerged that are tangential to new technologies that will support our move to towards electrification and our reduction on fossil fuels. So we're already seeing this shift already, you know, electric vehicles being the obvious one that we've already started to see major growth in. Tesla has been a huge outperformer prior to this year when we saw this big sell-off in technology and battery metals have done very, very well as well off the back of that. So I think there's going to be a lot of new opportunities within the theme of climate change that will emerge over the coming years. Um, very quickly, um, G- Gerard, was there anything you wanted to add to that? What are your big bets for future growth? Well, e- echoing what Victoria has actually said, I-, I don't think it's fully appreciated how well the UK is actually doing and taking the lead on the climate agenda. We've reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 44% from 1990 to 2019. And if you look at what's happening, we're already into our sixth carbon budget. But across, levelling up, we haven't talked about today, but one of the things I find really encouraging is the private sector-led initiatives helped, it has to be said, by initial public investment on the green agenda. Blythe, Hull, Aberdeen are centres for offshore wind, You've got a gigafactory about to be built in Coventry, private sector in electric vehicle production in Sunderland. You've got Anglesey and the Severn Valley already starting to have plans in terms of tidal. And in terms of hydrogen, you've got the Tees Valley and Orkney already benefiting from a combination of public and private sector investment. So I think on the green agenda, there's no doubt that globally a whole host things need to be done. No one should be complacent about that. But I very much echo what Victoria was saying, as well as what Jonathan and I were saying earlier about the wider agenda. But on the greener side, there's lots of positives there. But also, I'd like to see the financial sector, the city, do more, not only to remain competitive in its own right, but to better serve the needs of the wider UK economy. And I I think that's a key answer to this question that Patrick's asked as well. Um, Jonathan, I just want to try and squeeze in as many questions as possible, but we've got one here from Shay in Birmingham who asks, do you think a Labour government with Starmer would have a similar economic policy to the current Sunak government? And Sir Keir Starmer's obviously been out speaking this morning. Um, What do you think? I mean, Labour have not given us a huge amount of detail on economic policy uh, um, as yet. Um, The one substantive uh, um, proposal, as I understand it, is a significant increase in um, green investment, um, both public and designed to lever in private, very much uh, um, building on, as as and I agree with uh, what Gerald said, what is already an existing area of of, of strength for the UK. Um, And I think that at least is a start. Um, More broadly, though, um, I think we have relatively little idea of of what 
uh, Labour is actually offering. Um, there's talk about industrial strategy, but we've heard we've heard that before from um, governments of, of all all parties for for some time without it actually coming to very much. Um, uh, I think there is some hope that going back to what I said earlier, that we'd have a somewhat more constructive relationship with the EU um, and that that could be positive. But I think we, we really need uh, considerably more detail on what actually uh, Labour's economic strategy is, particularly around things like skills, education, housing um, and infrastructure. Uh, um, as well as uh, as well as the the sort of the green new deal green green investment uh, agenda. Um, Victoria, we've got a question here from Marcus who asks: Could a crisis in China or around Taiwan hurt the UK and the West in 2023? What are your predictions? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, China obviously very much front and centre for investors at the moment, and it's a very complex picture because on the one hand, it's finally starting to dismantle its uh, zero tolerance to COVID policies um, far beyond when the rest of the world has reopened post-pandemic. Then on the other hand, it's dealing with um, this surge in COVID cases, and it's also got very low vaccination rates among the elderly, uh, and there's a lack of official data around the latest COVID outbreaks as well. And that is already creating tensions between China and the West because the US and Japan and the UK have been stepping up their controls at borders for people coming in from China with COVID tests, etc. Um, so we're already starting to see some tensions bubble there. Um, I think it's interesting to see some of the parallels between what we've seen in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what we could potentially see between China and Taiwan, because China has been um, quite cautious in terms of its rhetoric around um, Russia's aggression, um, perhaps because uh, you know, we're living in an era of strong men at the moment. Perhaps that could embolden China to do a similar thing um, in Taiwan. So that is one of the big main sort of tail risks for 2023, is if we were to see further geopolitical tensions in the East. Um, but, you know, let's hope not. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, but in, in terms of investors, you know, they're feeling quite optimistic, actually, about China at the moment. We've seen a lot of Chinese markets fare pretty well off the lows in sort of October, November because of this broad economic reopening. But that health risk and uh, another global crisis, that that risk remains. Um, so I think investors are sort of approaching China with caution. Jonathan, you mentioned sort of global headwinds and, and some of the shocks that we've been affected by in 2022. Um, 2023, again, is likely to be dominated by Russia's war in Ukraine. How resilient do you think we'll be to another year of, of steep energy prices and escalating sanctions? Um, I think pretty resilient is the, the short answer. I mean, uh, while we should, I mean, obviously what is happening in Ukraine is horrible. Um, it is a terrible human tragedy. Um, but economically, I think uh, that we are, you know, barring some unforeseen event, which obviously I'm not the right person to ask about to forecast. But uh, um, economically, I think we're very much over the worst. Um, and in particular, the adjustment um, in other European countries, particularly Germany, to reduced energy supplies from Russia has been very, very quick and and almost you know and, and has largely already been achieved. 
which is one of the reasons that, that energy prices are falling now. So I think the the potential there, barring some unforeseen, unexpected geopolitical or, or event in the conflict, um, I would say that the economic pain resulting from that is very much largely behind us. And, and Gerard, you, you talked about how we should be focusing more on the Indo-Pacific region at the moment as a, a you know, post-Brexit, if we're trying to be a global Britain. Um, how much do tensions with Taiwan, for example, how much are they likely to impact our, our economic chances over the next year? Well, geopolitics has very much come to the fore. Um, what we've seen against this economic backdrop where public debt levels globally are all-time high and we're moving away from cheap money is that Western economies don't have that policy room for manoeuvre now uh, to respond or to be immune from those external shocks. So therefore, we need to take um, the external environment very seriously. My big concern about last year was the way the UN vote moved in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We very much moved to a G3 world, Group 1 being America and its allies, Group 2 China and its allies, and Group 3, the non-aligned world, people we previously might have thought were in the West's camp, but very much they didn't want to be seen to be alienating China and didn't want to be seen to be in America's back pocket. And so how that geopolitics evolves remains to be seen. But it should be said that Xi Jinping's start of the year speech very much focused on unity. It has to be said he was focusing very much on domestic unity with the focus photos of him and the previous two leaders just behind him to reassure people about the domestic unity picture. But it was perceived by people that he was taking a softer line on Taiwan, although uh, the Taiwanese president in her speech did point out that there were more Chinese planes getting closer to the mainland. So we need to watch what happens as well as listen to what has been said. But the positive is that a softer tone seems to have been evident at the beginning of the year. But coming back to your question, geopolitics clearly is there. No one can predict with certainty what's going to happen. The worry from an economic perspective is that our room for policy manoeuvre is far less than it has been in the past when we've been hit by shocks, whether geopolitical or otherwise. Well, I'm afraid we've completely run out of time, but thank you all for, for joining us to, to explain the state of the economy in 2023. So thank you to Jonathan Portis, Victoria Scholar, and Gerard Lyons, and to everybody who's tuned in. And thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. 